So we, last week we saw that um, Paul and Silas, well, actually we should say Silas and Judas had gone to Antioch and they had brought that letter that was from the Jerusalem Council about the freedom that the Gentiles have in regards to, to the law that they needed to, to not keep all the law of Moses. They didn't need to be circumcised. Um, and uh, what ends up happening is they end up staying, they end up, uh, or Silas ends up staying, ends up doing ministry there. And, uh, and of course, we talked about... <coughs> We talked about the split between Barnabas and Paul. Now they went their kind of separate ways. And so Paul and Silas now are kind of uh, teaming up together and they go to Philippi, this, this chief uh, city in that area uh, of Macedonia. And they're in Philippi and uh, Timothy joins them on their ministry. And we saw last week where, where they were at Philippi was they had gone out by the river where the women were meeting to pray. We talked about that means there probably wasn't enough Jewish males to have a synagogue. And so they would gather there to pray. And this woman, this God-fear, Lydia, becomes a Christian. God opens her heart and she, she gets saved. And so we kind of left it there. So we kind of left that place where Lydia has become a Christian. Uh, and now we're, we're continuing on with Paul and Silas still doing ministry in Philippi. Um, and as, as I was getting ready to share this with you guys, I was thinking about, you know, what can we learn from this kind of stuff? I mean, because sometimes we look, we look at Paul's life, we look at the kind of missionary journeys he went on, and I don't know about you, but I feel this just great gap between him and me, you know? It's like they're doing these radical things, and they, they are doing radical things. I mean, Luke's writing this down because of the radical things to show that Paul has the same kind of apostolic authority that Peter had, and, and this is how we got from the Gospels to the Epistles. I mean, Acts is a very much of a bridge-building kind of a book. And there is a, a distance sort of between us in one sense. But in another sense, we don't want to forget that one of the main themes of the book of Acts is the work of the Holy Spirit in God's people. And one of the things that we're, we're going to look at tonight is this reality of needing to trust the Holy Spirit for endurance. We need endurance. And it reminded me of what the author of Hebrews wrote to the Hebrew Christians. These were, were, were men and women who were Jews who had become Christians, but because they're being persecuted by the Jews who didn't become Christians, they're thinking maybe we're going to kind of back off. Maybe we're not going to keep pressing on with God. And, and the author writes this. In, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, he writes, For you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. You have need of endurance. And I think it's important for us to recognize that endurance is part of saving faith. That, that when God calls a person to, to faith in Jesus, when a person realizes they need to trust Jesus as their Savior, the faith He's calling them to and the faith He's wanting to produce in their life is a faith that endures to the end. Jesus said things like, those who endure to the end shall be saved. So God's not calling us to just to kind of make a one-off decision. He's calling us into relationship, and he knows that that relationship is going to change us in some pretty radical ways and cause us to go through some pretty difficult circumstances. And so he's calling us to endure. He's saying, look, it's going to require endurance. 
And I have to tell you, I, I don't like endurance. I don't like endurance sports, you know. Uh, I'm not very fast, so I wouldn't say I'm a sprinter, but I'm even a worse endurance runner, you know. I, I, the whole idea of endurance is difficult. I like short, quick, concise, planned out things that I can accomplish and take off my list. Not this, it's going to be a long road, you know. And so there's a reality that, that it doesn't come natural to us, I don't think, to endure. But it's part of the Christian life. There's a need for endurance in the Christian life. And I think we're going we're to see that through Paul and Silas' example. So pick it up, verse 16, it says, Now it happens as they went to prayer, going back to the riverside to pray, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination, divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Now, here they are, they're going to prayer, and there's this, this really demon-possessed girl. Now, it's important that we recognize that there is this reality of demonic activity, which definitely means that we need endurance, okay? Um, and, and I want to just say a couple things about this to bring some clarity. I don't want to spend too much time getting into demons and such, but... It's important that we recognize that we see here both the influence of demonic spirits and uh, the possession by demonic spirits. And what I mean by that is the masters, the, these, these kind of slave owners who are taking advantage of this girl, of her condition, uh, they're being influenced by the enemy to do this. I mean, they're making sinful choices. They're choosing to do this. Uh, but there's no doubt that there's a blindness there. There's a demonic influence there. And I think it's important for us to recognize that whenever our flesh is involved, the enemy's involved. And whenever the enemy's involved, he's using our flesh against us, our natural human sinfulness, okay? This is not me trying to say, let's blame everything on the devil. It's just the opposite. It's us recognizing that we do have an enemy, and he knows where we're weak, and he exploits that weakness all the time. And he's exploiting these guys and their love for money. They're taking advantage of this poor slave girl who's possessed. But this slave girl isn't just kind of influenced by demons. She is possessed. And the difference is, one is a kind of an influence in the sense of saying, here's what you should believe or here's what you should do. And so, uh, maybe more of a seduction uh, uh, through ideas. And the other is when a demon actually enters a person and controls them, controls their actions, controls their thought life, and, and does things. Now, I've only seen one situation where I think a person might have been demon-possessed. Only one. And so it's not like I have great experience of this. And it was a situation where I wasn't the only one there, so I didn't like cast out a demon or anything. But I, I don't see anything in Scripture that would say this stuff doesn't still happen. Maybe sometimes we just want to say it's mental illness, and I think there's legitimate mental illness. Please don't make me. Please don't think that I'm saying that mental illness is always demonic. I'm not saying that, but there can be a situation where uh, demons possess a person. My understanding would be that's only going to happen if a person is actually wanting uh, spiritual powers, is, is delving into the occult and that sort of a thing. I share this because it's also important to recognize what she's doing. Obviously, as a spirit of divination, she's kind of fortune-telling. She's telling people their futures. And you think, well, how does that work? Do demons know the future? No, they don't. Only God for sure knows the future. Can demons read people's minds? No, only God alone knows the hearts and minds of people. But if, you, if, if demons are, as the Scripture says, these uh, angelic beings who have rebelled against God then they've been around since the beginning of creation and been observing human behavior from the beginning of creation. 
And people that are just people who just study human behavior can predict uh, with some sort of accuracy what humans might do in a given situation. How much more demonic spirits who uh, understand the, the nature of man, maybe more than we even understand about our own nature, and have been observing human behavior for thousands of years. And so this is kind of what I think happens with this. And I bring this up because there's, there are whole movements that are very popular. You know, I don't know if you know this, but Norwich has a huge uh, uh, spiritist movement in it. The spiritist church is very well attended. Uh, we have people involved in our church who came out of the spiritist church. And those people do. They, they try to pray to, uh, to these spirits to talk to dead ancestors and stuff. And sometimes they hear things that are pretty scarily accurate. Why? Because you have these demonic beings that know what happened in the past, read human behavior, can predict human behavior, and manipulate the people that are involved in this. Now, I'm not saying that to freak you out because we're close to Halloween. <laughs> I'm, saying this because, I'm saying this because there's a reality to this and, and for unbelievers, there can be some manipulation. And also, just to make sure that we're not messing around with stuff that we have no business messing around with as believers. And also, that we don't encourage or take lightly when other people do. I mean, I don't want to sound weird or extremist, but I mean, really, Ouija boards are evil. And you really shouldn't be involved with stuff like that. So there's a lot of occultic stuff that we kind of just think, oh, it's just innocent silliness because we know that stuff's not real. Well, there is, there can be a spiritual reality behind this stuff. And that, that can make life difficult. So these guys are experiencing that firsthand. They have this demon-possessed girl following them around. And what happens? Verse 17, the girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and he came out of her that very, uh, that very hour. Now, that, when it says very hour, it doesn't mean like within 60 minutes. It means at that moment, basically. Um, now, here's what's interesting, okay? So, Paul is walking in this place of prayer, probably on a daily basis. And here comes this fortune teller slave girl with her masters. And she's crying out something that's actually true. They're servants of the Most High God. It's interesting how the enemy works that way. The enemy loves to speak a portion of the truth because if he speaks a portion of the truth, specifically an important truth, it brings discredit to that truth. That's often why this, this kind of thing happens. But what's also interesting here in the situation is that Paul lets this happen for many days. And I don't know why. If you know you have the authority of Jesus and you can cast out a demon and you're pretty sure it's a demon, why not just say, get out the first day? But he kind of just lets it go for whatever reason. But what's interesting about this as well is that maybe it was the, the fact that they were becoming well-known as being servants of the Most High God from this sort of demonic influence. And like Jesus, like we see in Mark chapter 3 with Jesus, he didn't want demonic advertising. And so he's saying, okay, this is why we're going to stop it. And like Jesus, or, by, or through Jesus, he casts the demon out of her. Now we get to verse 19 and what happens? It says, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs that are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Now you notice how Luke does this? Luke says, okay, they're really bummed out because they can't make their money anymore. But what do they say the problem is? Oh, they exceedingly trouble the city, and they're doing things that aren't what Romans do. 
So they pull out the kind of patriotism, patriotism card. You know, this is about this is a Roman issue. They're Jews. They pull out the race card, is what they're doing. But the real motivation is the love of money, and that, that just tells us something about the, the the evilness of humanity. And this is what sinful humanity does. People uh, will not like what Christians do, and they'll accuse them of doing something that they're not necessarily doing, or being vague in their accusations, and use people's suspicion against them. Uh, to try to see them persecuted. I mean, think about what a vague uh, accusation it is. They exceedingly trouble our city. Okay. Why? Well, because they teach customs that, that aren't good for Romans. Okay. What customs? But as, you, as we're going to see, it worked. It was enough. That kind of prejudice that was against the Jews in Philippi worked. And so there's this reality, again, that these guys are going through having to, to face these real, this real, these sinful people. So they have demons coming, uh, kind of harassing them. They have sinful people uh, wanting to see them in trouble. And then look what happens in verse 22. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them in prison and commanded the, commanding the jailer to keep them securely, having Received such a charge, he put them in the inner stocks, uh, inner prison, sorry, and fastened their feet uh, in the stocks. Now, now think about how these guys are being treated. Okay, do you, do you, you understand what the hitting with rods is? It's like caning, and you know why they call them stripes. You guys understand why they call them stripes? Because they leave welts and then eventually opens cuts stripes on their back. Now, I've got a couple whippings in my day, but never did it leave a mark. And I still remember them because they hurt. Can you imagine getting beaten with a rod until your back begins to have cuts and welts and pretty serious stuff these guys are going through? And pretty extreme, isn't it? I mean, not only that, not only just are they extremely beaten, but they're put into not just a prison, but the inner cell that would have been the darkest, dampest, most diseased part of the cell. And not just in the inner cell, in stocks, which means they're, they're put in a place where their feet are locked into this wooden mechanism. Sometimes they would have holes for their wrists and their head as well, but this sounds like just for their feet. So you can't move your legs. Have you ever been in a car for a long time and your legs start cramping up? And you're like getting really uncomfortable. Imagine being in there all day, all night, and you cannot move your legs. So they're, they're experiencing not just the reality of demonic activity or sinful humanity, but they're experiencing the reality of unjust legal systems. Now, I, I'm, I'm pulling this out, and I'm, I'm making it sound not worse, but making sure we understand the seriousness of this stuff, because this is why we need endurance. <laughs> because we can have to go through sometimes really difficult circumstances. And I have to say, too, I've definitely seen a correlation between the, the, an increase in difficult circumstances and a fruitfulness in wanting to get the gospel out. It's like the more that we want to be committed to seeing people hear about Jesus and know Jesus, the more difficult things come. Why? Because the enemy doesn't want us to do that. The world doesn't want us to do that. Sinful people don't want us to do that. And there's a resistance to it. And so th- this is it. Th- I know this doesn't make us all happy, <laughs> and cheery, but this is a reality that we, we need to be sober about. It's, it's going to be difficult. If we're going to go for it with God, it's going to be difficult. Paul says, all those who even just desire to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer. 
We need endurance. It's going to be tough. We need endurance. This is why Jesus says, count the cost. Do you have what it takes? And I believe he wants us to count the cost and see if we have what it takes because so we can realize, no, I don't have what it takes. Lord, you're going to have to do this for me because he's going to have to do this for us. He's going to have to give us the endurance that we need. But it's important that we recognize these guys are going through difficult stuff. We don't want to paint a picture of the apostles that they were just kind of walking through life. You know, I'm cold blue steel and nothing bothers me. Persecution just bounces off my chest. It wasn't like that. These guys went through difficult stuff. It was hard. I guarantee When it says Paul was greatly annoyed, he was annoyed. He was, I can imagine him going, oh, God, what am I supposed to do? You know, this is just driving me, this girl's driving me nuts, this demon's driving me nuts, you know. So difficult circumstances require endurance, and anyone who's going to pursue God's going to go through difficult, difficult circumstances. Now, so they're in jail, it's midnight, verse 23, but at midnight, Paul and Silas, here's what they're doing in jail, praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, literally listening intently to them. Now, I love this because here they are, their feet are in stocks, their back is probably, you know, aching, you can, you can, I can imagine the throbbing pain they're feeling, it's probably beginning to itch and burn because it's a dirty, festering prison, uh, they probably haven't been given much to eat or drink, and what are they doing? All right, Lord, help us, we're here, make us a witness, you know, praying for the new believers that they, when they hear about this, they're not too stressed out about it. Oh, Lord, we glorify you. And then Silas breaks out in the song, you know, or whatever. You're sovereign over us. Whatever, you know. <laughs> they just break out in song. And the prisoners, all the other prisoners there, also in stocks, probably moaning, it's horrible. There can't be a God, or whatever, you know. The gods have forsaken me. And then they hear this singing. They hear this praying at midnight. Pretty amazing. And so they hear this, and, the, and God kind of wants to show that he thinks it's a good thing. So it says in verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake. And I believe this is a supernatural cause earthquake because of what happens. So the foundations of the prisons were shaken, and immediately notice all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And so the keeper of the prison awakened from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now, a, a Roman... A jailer was responsible for his prisoners' life, so uh, prisoners' lives, and so he needed to make sure that they didn't kill each other, but also that they didn't escape. And if they were to escape, it was his life for theirs. And so he's thinking they're going to beat me up and kill me, so I might as well kill myself now. Now I want you to think about this for a second because. What you have is you have this kind of supernatural earthquake that happens. All the doors are, are, are open wide. And, and you, you might even get a sense that this uh, jailer might have realized something radical happened here. He probably heard some of the singing as well. But that, that powerful earthquake doesn't bring him to his knees. It just brings him to a point of dread. It's interesting, isn't it? We sometimes think, don't we? We think, man, if God would just do a powerful miracle, people would humble themselves and they'd believe. No? They might just get scared out of their wits and be suicidal, like this guy was. Seriously. We think that's what's going to happen, but that's not what happens. What happens? 
But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm, uh, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Now, first of all, the miracle that all the prisoners didn't move. Maybe they were just so blown away by the way the earthquake happened. And they're just thinking this has to be God because it was, had to be connected to their singing and praying. You know, that's be their God who did this. But also the fact that how did Paul know he was about to kill himself? Did he walk in and then Paul could see he was going to do it? Or did Paul just know? And I, I mean, I don't know. The text doesn't say. But what's amazing about this, it says that he does this when Paul does this. When Paul says, look, don't harm yourself. We're here. We don't want you to die, basically. Now, don't most guys in this kind of prison want their jailers to die? We don't want you to die. And so he comes in. The jailer calls for light. He runs in. He fell down, verse 29, trembling before Paul and Silas. Now, I love this because what's going on here is really Paul, in a sense, is demonstrating the gospel. The power of God could bring your death. All your prisoners could escape and you could die. But there's mercy. We don't want you to die. They're, in a sense, their actions are demonstrating the gospel. Now, I love this because this is the second thing I think we need to understand about endurance. Of course, the first one is difficult circumstances require endurance. But I think the second thing is this, that effective witness comes through endurance. I mean, what if Paul would have just gone, thank you, God, we're free, let's go, come on. Silas, book it, let's go, you know. God set us free. I mean, they could have thought that way. God set us free. But they didn't think about their own freedom or their own comfort. They thought about the soul of that jailer. They were willing to endure, stay in prison, so that that guy could get saved. You guys ever heard of the Moravians? They were these German Christians called the Moravians. Uh, The Moravians uh, were this group that was really passionate about getting the gospel out to people. I want to say it was what... Is it the 13th century or 12th century, something like that? I can't remember. Was it 17th? Was that late? Okay, March 17th. Anyway, the, the, the Moravians, they, the, what they would do, so desirous were they to bring the gospel to all the nations that some of the Moravians sold themselves into slavery. They sold themselves to the African slave ships so they could go to those colonies and witness to the slaves that were in the colonies. <laughs> That's amazing. And we're afraid to bring it up over a cup of tea. (laughs) It's amazing how when we're suffering, we nowadays, when we're suffering, we're we're so consumed with, here I am in prison, and our prayers, if we are praying, is why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, God, me? And we forget that maybe God has us in a place so that our endurance itself provides an opportunity for witness. Think about that. Next time you're talking to somebody or you yourselves are experiencing what you think is a bad marriage. Oh, God, why did you put me in this bad marriage? Or you have a friend that says, why did God allow me to marry this guy such an idiot? Or this girl that's such a loser? Why am I in this situation? Whatever the case might be. Well, maybe it's simply because your endurance is going to be a witness. Maybe that's what it is. You ever thought about that? Or your tough job? Or your wayward child? Or your hideous neighbor from hell? Why? So that your endurance can provide an opportunity for witness. So that when they are at their wit's end, 
and fears consume them, and all they want to do is be self-destructive. You can say, wait, do yourself no harm. So this man hears this, and he runs, and what does he do? He kneels trembling before Paul and Silas, Silas and, he, and, and um, he brought them out. He brings them out of the prison, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I, the word for saved there, it's the word that's used all the time, saved. It can mean delivered. It can, we think of saved as in saved from my sins, uh, you know, was going to hell, now I'm going to heaven. But it can mean simply just delivered out of a bad situation. And so I was wondering, what, what does he mean here? What does he want when he says, what do I need to be, do to be saved? Does he mean saved before God? Does he mean he's delivered before this God who created the earthquake and is their God who set them free? Does he mean, how am I going to be saved to explain that, you know, to the Roman, you know, uh, officials that, that the prison doors were all open? I mean, obviously all the prisoners were still, were still there and I'm sure um, the, the doors were locked back up and they were remaining in there. What was he wanting? It seems to me that it has to be spiritual, that he has to be saying, I need to be delivered from this God who I'm going to face. I, I need to be delivered from this God. That's what it means to be saved. I, I, I need salvation. What do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to be right with God? And I have to say to you, I've only had this question posed to me once in 25 years of ministry. It was when I did youth ministry in, the, in California, and this girl um, uh, had been visiting our youth group for a couple a couple weeks and asking some pretty good questions. And she was a she was a nice girl, really funny and smart, and um, so, sort of I wouldn't say cynical, but just kind of like mm, didn't seem that all that serious. And then so she'd come up after after service, she'd ask me these questions, answer her questions. She'd go, "Okay, that's pretty cool. Well, maybe I'll come back next week." And, and so one week she came back up at the service and she looked a bit more serious. And I said, so what's up? What's your question this week? She goes, I have many questions. What do I need to do to be saved? I need to be saved. Tell me how to get saved. Only time it ever happened. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> Got to pray with her, receive Christ. And she's still walking with the Lord as far as I know. The thing is, is that it's amazing what happens when we endure circumstances, and we endure with people, how God uses that as a platform for witness. And I love the way they answer too. So simply, verse 31, so they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your whole household. In fact, they say this so simply. You know, there's people that criticize this. There are people that say, Paul blew it, man. He didn't preach repentance here. He really messed up. Which I think is kind of silly for us to kind of say Paul messed up. It's kind of strange we learn from him. Now, please don't get me wrong. Repentance is, is a, it's a non-negotiable part of saving faith. God calls all of us to repentance towards God, faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But why didn't they bring it up? Because they saw it was already happening. They could see that this guy was like, oh man, I'm in, I just, I'm desperate for God. There was no like, you know, I, I like this Jesus stuff, but I'm not sure if I want to give up beating up my prisoners, you know. It wasn't that kind of a situation. And I love this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you guys know what it means to believe? When we think of belief, we tend to think of, here are the things I have to understand and say, yes, I think that's true. Yes, I think it's true. Yes, I think it's true. We tend to think of the definition of belief is a mental assent to truths. 
But that's not what it means. You know what it means to believe? The, the word here for believe, it simply means to entrust. It, it would be like this. It, w- it would be, okay, I say, okay, Josh, for my 25th wedding anniversary, I bought Sarah this beautiful diamond necklace. I mean, I've been saving for five years for this thing, buddy, but I don't want her to find it. So I am entrusting you with this most valuable thing that I have and saying, don't give it to Kitty (laughs) and keep it safe until August when I can give it to Sarah. I'm entrusting you with something valuable. To believe means to entrust. So when we, when Jesus, when the Bible calls us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it means to entrust. It means we say, God, here it is, my eternal destiny, my soul, uh, my livelihood, everything that I am, I'm saying, here it is. I'm entrusting you with it. It's yours. That's what it means to believe. A lot bigger than just making a mental ascent to a few things, isn't it? That's what saving faith is. Believe. That's what they're saying. Believe. And tr- you can trust Jesus with everything. You must trust Jesus with everything. Here it is, Lord. I'm yours. Can you see how this com- connects to Jesus' call to be a disciple? You know? I think I forgot to, to say it today, but it was probably on the screen, uh, where, where, where Jesus says, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself daily, pick up his cross, and follow me. Or pick up his cross daily, deny himself, and follow me. It's that total abandonment. Lords, I can't trust myself. I can't trust entrust myself to anything but you. Here's my whole life. I'm entrusting my whole being to you. That's faith. That's what faith is. All that I am is yours. And so they say this to this man. And it's interesting because they say you and your whole household. And I have to say, this is one of the sections. This is the fact, the primary section that um, people use to, to, uh, con- to encourage infant baptism. Now, I don't have a big problem with getting babies wet. It doesn't really bother me. But I think you'll see that this, this has nothing to do with like babies being baptized. Okay, just so you know. So, but let's look what happens. It says, so they go, verse 32, so then they spoke the word of, of the Lord to him, that's to the jailer, and to all who were in his house. So the idea is all his, his wife, his children, probably all his servants as well. And he took them that same hour of the night and he washed down their stripes and immediately he and his family were baptized. So you get this picture that his house was probably connected to where the jail was, where the prison was. And so the earthquake comes, he, it wakes him up, he sees the, the doors wide open, he thinks that's it, they're going to die. He hears Paul saying, no, 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 come on in. They, they come in, uh, he, he falls down, wanting to be saved, and they're saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he takes him into their, uh, the jailer takes Paul and says in their home, washes him up, they're hearing, as they're washing him up, they're preaching the gospel to him, explaining who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what it means to trust him, why we need to trust him, and they say, great. And everyone who's listening there, Obviously, old enough to hear is baptized. Probably could be a fountain in their courtyard. It could be a bathtub that they had sort of using. Who knows what it was, but they were baptized, okay? They're baptized. Now, what's cool about this is that it says in verse 34, now when they had brought them into the house, he set food before them. The dealer set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed with all his household. So everyone believed they all got baptized. Now, that's a good day. Now, the word rejoiced here. There's, a, there's sometimes a word for rejoice that just means to have a calm cheerfulness, like, that's really good. And there's another word for rejoice that means jumping for joy. It's that 
that word. Now, I want you to think about this. The guy went from, in a matter of minutes, went from suicidal fear to jumping for joy. I would call that evidence of God's grace. I think that guy got saved. I think God did something there. Remember, all this is through Paul and Silas being willing to not just endure you know, demonic oppression and evil, sinful people and an unjust legal system and beatings. But they're willing to endure that with joy. They're willing to just give it to the Lord, seek God, give glory to God in that circumstance. And can we be honest about this as well? Isn't there something purifying about worshiping God when our circumstances are horrible? Because when we're thanking God and we're worshiping God when our circumstances are great, we should thank God and worship God when our circumstances are great. But when we're doing that, that's pretty easy to do. Because you're like, you're happy anyway. Your circumstances are great. It's easy to kind of go, yeah, God, you're awesome. This is great. Because this is great. But when your circumstances are horrible and your feet are in the stocks and you've just been beaten and you're in this stinky, nasty prison, you know what's going to happen to you next. And you're still saying, God, You are great. There's something pure about that worship, and there's something of a witness to that worship. So, almost done. So what happens? Verse 35, And when it was day, the magistrates sent officers, saying, Let those men go. And so the keeper of the prison reported the words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have set to let you go. Now, therefore, depart, go in peace. Probably think, Oh, good, you're set free. Isn't anything wonderful? So what's Paul do? Paul says, But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now, do they want to put us out secretly? Uh, No, indeed. Let them come out themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Romans. And when they uh, heard that they were Romans, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, when they, they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. Now, Here's what's going on, okay? Paul and Barnabas do have a chance to depart in peace. But Paul says no. Now, this was not like arrogance. He wasn't being cocky like, hey, God just used me, buddy. I ain't afraid of you. This was, I got earthquakes at my call. You know, it wasn't like one of those things. This is Paul recognizing, you know what? I need to use the law here. Because Roman law said that you could not be beaten as a Roman citizen unless you first had a trial. So what happened to him was completely illegal, and they could either be beaten and even killed for what they did to Paul, if he wanted to kind of press it. But what Paul's doing here is he's using the law of the land to get justice for the people that he knows are going to preach the gospel. He knows he's just converted Lydia, uh, her household, the jailer, his household. Uh, There's probably other people also involved that we're going to see in a minute. And he knows these people, because Paul's disciple them, he's disciple them as people who, therefore, if you're entrusting God with your whole life, that means you entrust him, that he is good and worthy to follow. And that means doing what he says. And that means telling other people that he's good and worthy to follow. And so Paul is using the law of the land to make sure that these guys get justice. That they're able to preach the gospel and not themselves get beaten. Now, what's cool about this is that Paul, again, he's enduring a difficult situation. He's not just trying to leave when it's easy. And he's enduring for the sake of others again. This time, not for a witness to unbelievers, but for the benefit of believers. And so it says in verse 40, so that when they went out of the prison, they entered the house of Lydia... Uh, And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. These guys encouraged these new converts through their endurance. 
See, this is why also we need endurance. Because you know why? Fellow believers need examples of endurance. One of the the reasons um, I didn't go back to America when things were really, really tough, and I wanted to. You can ask Sarah. I quit several times. Most Mondays. But there were a few times when it wasn't just I was a bit down. I just said, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. This is ridiculous. We're going back. And the reason I didn't quit when I wanted to quit was even after the horrible seasons were over and I was just weary from those horrible seasons and things were okay, but I was just weary and still hoping that God would let me go back to California. The reason I didn't was because so many of my friends who are pastors said, we've stayed because you stayed. We endured because you endured. And we thought, you know, we didn't have anybody die in our church. And we've had that happen. And, you know, we didn't have the kind of problems you had. And you didn't quit. So we're not going to quit. But you know, I didn't quit. (laughs) I didn't quit. Not just because they said that, but I didn't quit because my pastor, or my sending pastor, uh, left the town he grew up in that he loved, where he used to surf every day, and he moved to, the seriously, the very worst place you could possibly live in California, in this hot, horrible desert, and took over this teeny little group of, of believers that for the first few years, treated him so badly. I mean, so badly that when he, uh, he met his wife there, he went, there's a single man, took over this Bible study, met his wife there. He goes on his honeymoon. While he's on this honeymoon, the church split. Came back from his honeymoon and the church had split. And I kept thinking about, okay, Pete didn't quit. I'm not going to quit. He endured. I'm going to endure. Guys, we need each other's endurance. These guys were encouraged by Paul's and Silas's endurance. We need to encourage each other by enduring, not giving up.